this week on Political Research Digest, how interparty organizations like the House Freedom Caucus wield power in Congress. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. In just a few years, one organized faction of Republicans has regularly challenged their congressional leadership, forcing changes to the Obamacare repeal bill and encouraging the early retirement of Speaker John Boehner. How does the House Freedom Caucus gain such influence, even though most of their colleagues don't share their views or support their tactics? A new book, Building the Block, Interparty Organization in the U.S. Congress, puts the Freedom Caucus in historical context, concluding that they've successfully adopted the strict organizational strategies of centrist groups like the Blue Dog Coalition. I talked to author Ruth Block Rubin of the University of Chicago about why these groups form and why they succeed. What about competition from other party factions? I also talked to Andrew Clark of Lafayette College about a new study he co-authored with Jeffrey Jenkins in the forum called Who Are President Trump's Allies in the House of Representatives? It argues that the Freedom Caucus is more electorally dependent on Trump and gets more face time with him. Political scientists traditionally argue that the party leadership or the party member with the median ideology should be able to control party positions. But the new research finds that groups at the ideological extremes of the party, far out or toward the other party, can gain power through organization. Ruth Block Rubin says this is why interparty factions form. To basically keep uh, members who are seeking to change policy from what party leaders want it to be, either to make it more extreme or to make it more moderate, to stick together um, so that they're able to present dissent as a group. Um, and that they'll be sort of collectively pivotal, whereas uh, when it isn't an organization like this, it's really easy for party leaders to pick people off such that they can build a coalition without taking these people's protests. The Freedom Caucus has combined the most successful strategies of its forerunners. In many ways, the House Freedom Caucus is a weird fusion of two different kinds of intraparty organizations I look at in the book. So uh, we have both that we can think of as hardline intraparty organizations which organize people on the flank of their party, sort of the most extreme flank. And we have these more moderate or centrist intraparty organizations that capture moderate Republicans or moderate Democrats. And what's interesting is that hardline organizations as a rule have tended to adopt really open membership rules and try and grow the size of their organization quite large so that they can bargain with party leaders at the level of the party conference or circuit, because it's not really credible for them to vote with Democrats, and so they don't have the same kind of leverage that centrists would. And what's interesting about the House Freedom Caucus is that they've adopted a lot of the organizational strategies and rules governing their deliberation, their bargaining with party leaders, and their voting that more centrist groups than that. So the dynamic of why the House Freedom Caucus is so powerful, I think, is speaks in part to the, their capacity to take a lot of those heavy institutionalized procedures from central groups. Much of their success comes from the adoption of strict rules that others have yet to emulate. A pretty strict rule to bind members together. That really helps when you're dealing with party leaders because they know that that group is going to vote together and they have to take us correct seriously when that group controls a pivotal number of votes. Now, the Progressive Caucus has a challenging situation because there's a group like that already holding down the moderate party Democratic Party, and that's the Blue Dog Coalition. To reach these conclusions, Block Rubin studied caucuses stretching back more than a century in both parties and both chambers, including centrists and extremists. Initially, there's a lot of continuity at all time, and we see these same dynamics bubbling up each and every time. And so for the historical cases, I collected a lot of archival material from a bunch of different libraries and collections and in contemporary cases, 
uh, used both documentary evidence as well as um, interviews with members of Congress and, as it turned out, way more importantly, with their senators. And I think the benefit of using, in particular, archival materials here, meeting minutes from groups, a lot of correspondence between members that's confidential, is that you get to see the effects of organizations prior to voting. So I think part of the problem for political scientists when we're studying Congress is that we often rely on voting behavior and voting patterns to explain different phenomena. But here, interpreted groups, if they've done anything, have already done their work, right? All of this is happening behind closed doors. The groups do sometimes learn from their predecessors. The study committee was actually formed by lawmakers who expressed a lot of jealousy at how effective the Democratic study group was working. And so there they really did model their organization after the DSG, um, adopting a lot of the same rules and procedures and to getting off the ground a lot more quickly because they didn't have to do the same kind of experimentation that the DSG did. But so far, the moderate Republicans, like the Tuesday group, have not been as successful. For the Tuesday group, I think what we're really seeing, and I think the health care vote was an excellent example of this, is an interparty organization at the sort of centrist flank of the party that is insufficiently institutionalized. They are unwilling to bind members in bargaining. We saw multiple members of the Tuesday group bargaining with party leaders separately without any sort of coherent, cohesive front, whereas the House Student Caucus had expressed that they were only going to, you know, sort of adopt one party line, if you will. Historically, the moderates who succeed have partners in the other party. I think the most successful bipartisan coalitions that we've seen have actually been the product of two inter-party organizations at the centrist level, one in each party, and they work together. It's really difficult to get members from two different parties to work together and bargain with their party leaders separately if you're all following the same rules and procedures. It's sort of easier to let each group fight with their respective party leaders and then come together to cast the pivotal votes. But one thing that is worth thinking about is whether there are ways for these inter-party organizations to support each other. So are there things that the Blue Dog Group could be doing to make moderate Republicans have an easier time? The problem is oftentimes these guys are fighting over the same district, and so there are disincentives to working together. But Bach Rubin found that inter-party organizations are much less prominent in the U.S. Senate. These are fewer inter-party organizations in the Senate than in the House, and that's in part because individual members are far more likely to be pivotal to a chamber outcome in the Senate than they are in the House, and they have a lot more individual prerogatives to change policy without an inter-party organization. And so the organizations that do emerge in the Senate are, for the most part, a lot weaker than those that emerge in the House. In the Trump administration, it's the Freedom Caucus that seems to be gaining. As you might imagine, these inter-party groups do not often have quite the collegial relationship that it seems to have Freedom Caucus who's forging with them. Oftentimes, these are groups that are kicked in the mud and make it hard for a party coalition to pass the president's legislative agenda, and so they're not given the favored seats in the White House. What I think is certainly helping the House Freedom Caucus is actually two things, one of which is that they have an ally in the White House already, a former House Freedom Caucus member in OMB, Mulvaney, and they also have the fact that they're so cohesive and they can deliver to Trump a guaranteed number of votes. I spoke to Andrew Clark about new research he co-authored showing that President Trump doesn't yet have a clear ideological partner in Congress. And what we found was basically just that any of these three uh, ideological groups, the House Freedom Caucus, the Republican Study Committee, 
and a moderate sort of Republican Main Street partnership. Any of them could be potential allies to President Trump. But when we look at some data, both sort of election data and legislative data, what we find is President Trump doesn't really have a clear power center within the Republican Party. If we kind of squint a bit, it may look like the House Freedom Caucus is getting more attention with uh, the president, but it's tough to know if that is because they're sort of really closely aligned or in, in, in sort of strong agreement or if you know they're causing all sorts of problems for the president. But the Freedom Caucus does appear to be gaining power through obstruction. Consistent with their reputation as these bomb-throwing sort of ideologues that are blocking legislation, they do seem to pursue an obstructionist strategy, but it's important to kind of know that that makes a lot of sense if you think about where they are ideologically. They're going to agree with uh, the Republican Party on a lot, probably most of what's happening, but they view their role, sort of in interviews I've done with uh, affiliates and sort of just descriptions and journalist accounts, they view their role as sort of making sure the Republican Party stays anchored to a very conservative position. And Speaker Ryan was well aware of their influence when he signed up. Paul Ryan took over the speakership in a pretty tough position. Um, in fact, he sort of ran his potential speakership by the House Freedom Caucus before he agreed to sort of accept the position after uh, John Boehner resigned. So far, Clark has only limited evidence of their success in the Trump era. It's purely descriptive, and it's just kind of trying to take a quick look at what might be going on. So we take 538's measure of how often you're, you're voting with the president when he's out of those votes that he's taken sort of a position on. But certainly we should be looking at sort of a, a really uh, narrow subset of votes, many of which are probably amendments uh, down the road if we want to evaluate a more sort of precise causal estimate of like how these institutions can change their influence. What looks like caucus influence may just reflect the underlying ideologies of its members. You're running the same sort of threats of threats to causal inference um, in terms of, you know, are these institutions actually changing behavior in any way or are they just sort of a reflection of pre-existing preferences? So fortunately, I mean, you're able to both sort of draw on lessons of that uh, larger literature and use some sort of newer methodological approaches like the sort of difference in difference designs. Um, in some work I've done, some actual experimental analysis of if, you know, sort of just identifying with one of these groups changes the perception of how conservative or liberal they are. So there are tools at the margin um, that you can sort of do to try and address this, but it is a difficult problem to, to, to really touch on. And in, in many cases, I think some of these groups um, are in fact just kind of labels that don't actually change behavior. Uh, like the Tea Party Caucus, for example, doesn't seem to really have changed the behavior of their member membership, but it did sort of provide a nice uh, moment for people like Michelle Bachman to sort of signal to the conservative base. But Clark agrees with Rubin that the Freedom Caucus stands out because of their strict rules. Unlike some of these other groups that have popped up and sort of faded, like the Tea Party Caucus or the, the most recent sort of populist caucus, and like some of the more organized centrist groups like the Blue Dog Coalition, the House Freedom Caucus has made sure that members understand that they are expected to vote as a block when this sort of 80% threshold is met. So I think that they are both learning from sort of what they perceive as the mistakes of conservative groups like the Republican Study Committee and sort of success of groups like the Blue Dog Coalition. Where I think the Freedom Caucus has sort of probably innovated more than other groups is they've really, really done a great job sort of tying themselves into well-funded and highly organized conservative groups. He says centrist groups are trying to match the power, but finding it difficult. 
looks like some of the centrist groups, like the Republican Main Street Partnership, which includes sort of like the Tuesday group type, are realizing that they're maybe ill-equipped to sort of uh, fight back against sort of the, the more conservative influences within the party. And so they recently formed a new group, now I guess the Republican Main Street Caucus. And, and it would be interesting to see if they adopt some of the more kind of highly organized institutions to sort of push back against the conservative wing of their party. And the Progressive Caucus on the Democratic side has also failed to develop an influential reputation. The group has to be able to sort of distinguish itself in order to credibly signal this subred. So the Progressive Caucus is certainly, uh, in, the, in the Democratic Party, is certainly considered to be sort of, you know, the left wing of the party. Um, but there's so much overlap with sort of party leaders that I think they have a harder time signaling that they are sort of a distinct type of uh, partisan uh, compared to a group like that. Can the congressional leadership or the White House do anything to push back? Clark thinks it might backfire. Attempt to sort of overtly punish some of these more organized groups like the Freedom Caucus by pulling funds may backfire because these groups are then able to, you know, kind of more uh, heavily depend on these outside groups and pursue like a hardline conservative strategy. So I'd say... The advice I would have is to sort of try and co-opt some of these groups, maybe put them in better sort of committee assignments and, and positions of influence within the party so that you're able to work out sort of inter-party disagreements without kind of pushing them into their own uh, pocket of political influence, I'd say. But Black Rubin told me Ryan might be able to learn from historical efforts to push back. I think we're trying to take a page out of Newt Gingrich's book, which is to make the funding structure within Congress less conducive to forming these organizations. Now, Gingrich made it much more difficult for these groups to um, get congressional funding for staffing, and the groups have since adapted. But there may be other mechanisms by which, even if something as simple as making it harder for them to find space to meet. Clark says future research might look at the similar organizations developing in state legislatures. There does seem to be some sort of spread of these groups, or at least sort of mimicking of these groups at the state level. So unlike uh, some of these sort of older groups that have existed, you know, in the early 1900s and, and late, uh, or sorry, uh, mid 1900s, we're starting to see that there is a Freedom Caucus in, in New Hampshire, there's a Freedom Caucus in Texas. Those groups appear to be actually speaking with each other. There's a Progressive Caucus and New Democrat Coalition popping up in the state legislative assembly almost always the lower house, um, and they seem to be employing the same sort of strategy that these national or federal-level sort of factions are, are employing. And he says if the Freedom Caucus continues its dominance in Congress, we may have to reconsider our theories of party organization. If we see the House Freedom Caucus extract significant concessions on major pieces of policy over the next few years, then we really should sort of reconsider some, you know, primary theories of, of, of lawmaking in the House because these groups are so far from what we typically think of as sort of pivotal positions. They're nowhere near sort of the chamber or even the party median um, that it requires us to, to sort of take a second look at party power in the House. Thanks for listening. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Ruth Block Rubin and Andrew Clark for joining me. To learn more, you can read the studies at niskanencenter.org. Join us next time to find out how gun control became the motivating issue for gun owners and unthinkable to pass in Congress. Music